Think about something you love, a person or a place, your town, your country, your farm, your neighborhood. Zoom in on one specific face. Hey, um, it's me. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Your friend, your sister, your cat, your kid, your mom. Good night. Think about how you feel when you're in that place you love. Think about what it's like to look into the eyes of that special person and see them looking back at you. Hi, Mommy. <laughs> and now imagine that someone comes to you out of the blue with a message. There's danger ahead, they say. Everyone and everything you love is at risk. Some of the pain ahead can't be avoided, but if you act quickly and decisively enough, you can prevent the worst. You can make the coming danger less dangerous. You can make it shorter and less frightening. You can help everyone you love suffer less. But you have to act now. This is not a metaphor. This is our reality. The threat is a global climate system thrown into chaos. And some of that danger is already upon us. But it could get much worse. Or, eventually, if we work hard enough, better. And all of us who happen to be alive right now are choosing between those two options. So much rests on the decisions that we collectively take today. After decades of scientific study and political wrangling, the world has agreed, at least on paper, that 1.5 degrees of heating must be the upper limit of our impact on the climate system. One and a half degrees Celsius of global heating over pre-industrial temperatures, and no more. 1.5 is non-negotiable. The safety of my children and yours hangs in the balance. We've already warmed the planet around 1.2 degrees Celsius on average, and more warming is baked in. So we are living through the last remaining years before we hit the line that we have decided not to cross. 1.5 is not a statistic. It is a matter of life and death. And the trick here is that there's a time lag, a gap between cause and effect. The climate is a huge, unwieldy ship. It can't be turned at the last minute. We can't wait to hit one and a half degrees before we act. The responsibility for preventing warming beyond that rests with us right now. What we do is the determinant. We're on track to reach 1.5 degrees and keep right on going to 2.4 degrees of heating or more. If we want to change that story and limit warming to 1.5, we don't have much time left. How much time? Well, no one can say for sure, but based on current emissions trajectories, we have until roughly 2029. We're releasing this in early 2022, so let's call that seven-ish years. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but approximately the time between kindergarten and middle school. 
slightly longer than one U.S. Senate term. The average lifespan of a guinea pig. We now have one last chance to truly change our course. This is the decisive decade in the history of humankind. That may sound like an exaggeration, but it's not. This all sounds very scary, I know, and it is. Our situation is dire, but think about it this way. We don't always get advance warning for human suffering, let alone instructions on how to reduce it. With climate, we do. We can see the danger coming toward us, and we have the power to lessen the pain for everything and everyone we love, including ourselves. Will we choose to do that and do it fast enough? Welcome to Threshold, I'm Amy Martin, and this is season four, Time to 1.5. At 1.2, we're starting to feel the pain. At 1.5, there will be more pain. And beyond two, I would strongly advise us not to go. We are at a critical point. We need to get emissions to zero now, otherwise things are going to be much worse. Everybody's doing a little bit, little bit doesn't count. Are they doing enough to stay below 1.5? So we're in uncharted territory and we have to embrace it. Dear delegates, dear friends, good afternoon. I'm at the Global Climate Talks in Glasgow, Scotland in November 2021. The Threshold team came to this UN conference known as COP26 to learn about how the world is working together, sort of, to put the brakes on the climate crisis. Representatives from almost every country in the world are in a cavernous room, sitting behind their microphones in long rows. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry is just a few seats away from me. I can see his leg bouncing in agitation. As you can imagine, it's hard to get everyone in this room to agree on anything. But one concept that almost everyone seems to be on board with is keeping 1.5 alive. Here's the representative from Costa Rica. For Costa Rica, all decisions and all the work here in Glasgow should be framed to keep this 1.5 alive. And from the Marshall Islands. To get us on the trajectory to 1.5 that is the lifeline for my country. And I argue it's the lifeline for everyone in every country. And from the United States. We have to reduce emissions by 45% in the next 10 years in order to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And from Grenada. The world is watching and expects us to do the right thing. And that is to close this COP with a truly ambitious outcome which keeps 1.5 alive. We cannot let them down. This is our last real chance. So what is this number 1.5 all about? What does everyone mean when they say we have to keep 1.5 alive? Well, that story begins with a simple problem, the need for a goal. 
back in the early 1990s, when countries first came together to start working on climate, they pledged to keep greenhouse gas emissions, quote, at a level that would prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Anthropogenic means human-caused. So that was the best we could come up with at the time. We were going to limit human-caused interference to a non-dangerous level. But what was that level? How much interference with the climate was too much? How could that be quantified so the whole world had something to work toward and work to avoid? The process of answering those questions was both scientific and political. And I mean political in the broadest sense of the word, the complicated process of groups of humans trying to make decisions together. We're going to trace both threads of the 1.5 origin story in this episode, starting with the question of how a number that sounds so small could matter so much. We cannot negotiate with nature. We cannot negotiate with the planet. Ewan Rockstrom will be our guide through the scientific side of the 1.5 story. He's a professor of Earth System Science at the University of Potsdam in Germany. He's originally from Sweden, and he consults with business and government leaders around the world on climate. And Ewan says we've already heated up the planet close to 1.2 degrees Celsius. That's average global temperatures. Some places, like the Arctic and many parts of Africa, are much hotter already. So, so 1.2 is a lot that we've done already now, and, and going to 1.5 it would be very dramatic. Ewan knows it can be hard for people to get why they should care about something that sounds as small as 1.5 degrees Celsius, or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. But he says from a climate perspective, it does really matter. And to understand why, he says it helps to know that the Earth has three basic steady states, three versions of climate equilibrium. The first is called Snowball Earth, which is like an ice age on steroids, where the whole planet is completely frozen. The second is called Hothouse Earth, with a lot of carbon dioxide in the air, no ice left anywhere, extremely high seas, and large portions of the planet most likely uninhabitable for humans. So those are the two extremes. And then in the middle, you have this, this oscillation with a planet that has periods of ice age, and shorter interglacials. This middle ground is where we are now, fluctuating between ice ages and slightly warmer periods called interglacials. And it is this interglacial state that we have more and more evidence is the only state that can support the modern world as we know it. Our current interglacial period is called the Holocene. It started about 12,000 years ago. We have been around on Earth as humans, as fully-fledged modern humans, perhaps some 200,000 years. Now, we've been largely hunters and gatherers during almost all that time. So picture your distant ancestors running around the planet for around 200,000 years. They have all of the intellectual firepower that we have now, and theoretically, they could have invented writing or started building pyramids at any point. But they didn't. Until we leave the last ice age and enter the last 12,000 years interglacial, the Holocene. And that's where we have the takeoff point for civilizations as we know it. And here's where we can start to see how seemingly small temperature changes can have a big impact on humanity. 
For most of the Holocene, the global mean temperature was around 14 degrees Celsius, or 57-ish degrees Fahrenheit. Scientists know this through studying chemical signatures left in ancient sediments, ice cores, and fossils. So the Holocene has been a remarkably stable period in terms of climate, and people put that stability to good use. When we enter the Holocene, that's when we domesticate animals and plants and start developing agriculture and sedentary communities. That has been, we know, the very prerequisite for, for civilizational development and the modern world as we know it. And now for the punchline here. Guess how much average global temperatures changed during this period? The Holocene, the only state that we've been able to develop civilizations in, has a maximum range for the global mean temperature of plus minus one degree Celsius. So the planet never exceeds plus one. But now it has because of us. And we can already see a disrupted climate beginning to disrupt human societies. This is a key concept that I hadn't really thought about that much before I started reporting on climate, the importance of stability for human development. On the individual level, it's easy to see. A kid growing up in a relatively peaceful home has a better chance of doing well in school than a kid who's forced to constantly deal with chaos and upheaval. Stability means kids can spend more of their internal resources on their own growth instead of warding off danger or worrying about the next unwelcome surprise. But the same could be true for us at the civilization level. Maybe it's only when we have some predictability around our basic resources, food, water, shelter, that we can start to focus on things other than survival. Yuan says that's what seems to have happened around 10,000 years ago. We domesticated animals and plants largely simultaneously on different continents. So something very special happened with planet Earth uh, 8 to 10,000 years ago when we uh, could benefit from, from tremendous harmony in our rainy seasons, in our growing seasons, in the stability of our climate that made sense to, to sow and harvest because we could get the benefit from that investment basically each year. Um, so, so that is, I think, a very strong piece of, of the puzzle here that the Holocene is so, so necessary for us. So throughout the last 10,000 years or so, Average global temperatures fluctuated around the 14 degrees Celsius mark, but not by much. The Earth never got more than one degree colder or hotter than that, until people started burning massive amounts of fossil fuels, releasing heat-trapping gases into the air. So, so we have already crashed through the warmest temperature on Earth since we left the last ice age. We've already gone through. So. So we are, de facto, already outside of the Holocene range. One thing that's really important to understand here is that climate is not binary. It's on a spectrum. So it's not like if we hit 1.6 degrees, we suddenly wake up to an utterly changed world. It's not an escarpment where we just abruptly collapse, but the risk is that things start gradually and unstoppably moving in the wrong direction. So think of global heating like turning the knob on a stove, not flipping a light switch. Changes are incremental. But as Yuan said, 
Even at one and a half degrees of warming, we're already far outside of what would be happening naturally if we hadn't started binging on fossil fuels around 200 years ago. Just think of this. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the, the science panel of the UN, shows that if we continue burning fossil fuels as today, we, we may reach between three and four degrees Celsius warming by the end of this century. And if you check that point, what would that correspond to in time if you would wind that back in geological history? Well, it would actually wind back the climate clock to the planet as we had it roughly 10 million years ago. Wow. 10 million years ago. So in my mind, that sentence is enough to say, how, how can there be one skeptic in this, in this world? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's never happened before, as far as we know, geologically, that anything has changed so fast. It's been changing, I can assure you, but never at that rate and never at that scale. Yuan says if we manage to keep temperature rise to one and a half degrees and no more, we might just barely be able to hold on to something like the Holocene. But we can't say for sure because of this whole climate is on a spectrum thing. Or maybe a better way to think of climate is as a complex network of processes, and each of them is on a spectrum. And no one knows for sure where the tripwires are, how and when we might trigger interactions between the planet's systems that could send us into truly terrifying territory. Maybe even the hothouse Earth scenario, which would fundamentally alter all life on the planet. A huge proportion of species would go extinct, and human civilizations would crumble. We might not die out as a species, but we would be radically changed. And it would hurt. And as you can imagine, this is like the grand quest. Where is that tipping point where we are at risk of, of moving from a Holocene state that can support us towards gliding towards a hothouse? And the, the truth is, we do not know where that point is. Let's not find out. Let's not find out. I mean, we cannot experiment with our home because we don't have a, you know, we don't have an alternative. But one thing we do know is that once we hit a tipping point, it's next to impossible to untip it. That's because of the time lag I mentioned earlier, this gap between cause and effect in the climate system. Yuan thinks about this in terms of commitment time and impact time. An impact time is the moment when things blow up, meaning when can we expect six meter sea level rise? When can we expect the green ice sheet to have melt? When can we expect the, the collapse of the uh, coral reef system? Impact time gets a lot of attention. When will we lose all the sea ice? When does Miami become uninhabitable? When do these various climate bombs explode? But Yuan thinks we should be paying a lot more attention to commitment time, because that's the point at which we've set the course that will inevitably lead to those outcomes, when we've assembled the bomb and set the timer with no way to turn it off. And what we find in science, increasingly, is that the commitment time for many of these occurrences is in the next 10 years. We have to avoid pressing the on buttons. And, and that is about commitment time. It's not about impact time, it's commitment time. So I've got some good news and some bad news for you now. Let's start with the bad. It's quite likely that we've already moved through the commitment time for hitting 1.5 degrees in the future. That damage has been done. 
But the good news is that we can still influence the crucial question of what happens after that. Are we going to reach 1.5 degrees and keep on going, continuing to warm the world? Or will we graze the 1.5 mark and then start bending the temperature curve back down? The difference between these two options is vast, and that's what we're deciding right now and over the next seven-ish years. It's like we have a lit stick of dynamite in our own living room, and we're watching the flame move closer and closer to the explosives, but we haven't decided whether or not to put it out. It's an extremely dangerous situation, but our choices have a huge impact on whether or not that danger gets amplified or diffused. This might sound bizarre in in such a dark time, honestly, but I actually find great hope in that. Like, we haven't pushed the button yet. We're really close, but we haven't. Like, we actually still have time to not do that. Yeah, that is correct. And that's uh, that's a very good way to put it, that as far as we know today, at 1.2, we're starting to feel the pain. At 1.5, there will be more pain. But as far as we know, we will not cross uh, irreversible tipping points. There won't won't be a pressure of the on buttons. So if we can hold the 1.5 line, we will have, you know, higher frequency of extreme events. We will have, you know, adaptation challenges. But at least we will still be within a manageable Holocene-like planet. And it's between 1.5 and 2 that it starts getting, you know, scary and beyond two i i would strongly advise us not to go the reality is no amount of tinkering with our climate is safe so what we're really talking about here is how much risk we're willing to live with as we transition off of fossil fuels that's what 1.5 degrees is essentially a mutually agreed upon level of danger And this is where the earth science and the social science really start to weave together. Because the level of danger you're willing to accept has a lot to do with who you are and where you live. Between one and a half degrees and two degrees, we can see islands underwater. We'll have more after this short break. Welcome back to Threshold, I'm Amy Martin, and in this episode, we're trying to understand how the world landed on 1.5 degrees as our global climate goal. Before the break, we spent some time on the physical science, now for the politics. I'm standing in a crowd of tens of thousands of people in Glasgow, Scotland. They've gathered to try to push world leaders to take meaningful action at the UN Climate Conference. What do we want? What do we want it? No! What do we want? Climate justice! When do we want it? No! This is just one of dozens of times I heard the words climate justice during the two weeks of the conference, and it wasn't only at protests. This phrase is all over the climate discourse. But I think it's possible that some people hear it and think, wait, isn't climate a science problem? How is it a justice issue? The truth is, it's both, and the justice part can be traced back to the simple fact 
that the climate crisis was created by people, and it was not created equally. Some countries have done a lot more to cause the problem than others. And climate damage doesn't land equally either. Many of the people and places that are feeling the impacts of climate change first and hardest did the least to cause it. One of those places is Bangladesh. Well, Bangladesh is uh, very much a global poster child for the impacts of climate change. Dr. Salim Al-Hook is the director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development at the independent university, Bangladesh. You're free to call me Salim. That's my first name. The first time I talked to Salim was in August of 2021. I was in the U.S. He was in the capital of Bangladesh, Dhaka. And you can hear the sounds of the traffic out his office window while we talked. We are a poor, uh, very dense populated country living on the delta of two of the world's biggest rivers, the Ganges and the Brahmaputra, which regularly flood. And we also suffer from uh, cyclones that come in regularly from the Bay of Bengal and affect the coastal population of the country. Salim says from where he sits, the question of what the global climate goal should be has never felt abstract or academic. He's a biologist, and he's served as a lead author on multiple UN scientific reports. We've known for quite a long time now that we are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, and we've been investing in uh, improving our ability to cope with those impacts of climate change and also advocating at the global level for uh, countries that are responsible for causing the problem to reduce their emissions so that we don't have a much bigger problem than we otherwise might have. When Salim says he wants the countries responsible for causing the problem to reduce their emissions, this is what he's referring to. According to the UN Environment Program, the G20 nations, that's 20 of the world's biggest economies, are responsible for 78% of cumulative global greenhouse gas emissions. In rough terms, that means 10% of countries have done almost 80% of the damage. That's a statistic that's worth hanging on to because it informs everything about climate. I mean, we all know how annoying it can be to have to clean up our own messes, but to be forced to deal with a mess that someone else has made that's spilling out onto you, that's a whole nother thing entirely. And that's what's happening in Bangladesh. The average person there burns a tiny fraction of the carbon that the average American burns every year, but the impacts of climate change are hitting the country very hard. As Salim said, Bangladesh is a densely populated country. About 165 million people live there, about half the population of the United States, living in an area roughly the size of the state of Illinois. And as the climate warms and sea levels rise, all of those people have less and less land to live on. The coastal areas of Bangladesh are getting swallowed up by the sea, And without a dramatic reduction in global emissions, soon, millions of people will be forced to relocate. If that happens, which we hope it won't happen, it can still be prevented, uh, then we are talking about millions of people being displaced uh, from the low-lying coastal area of the country. The order of magnitude of numbers of these climate refugees or migrants is about 10 million over the next decade or two. We are certainly not prepared for that, but we are thinking about what we can do and how we can prepare for that. Salim has been trying to help his country prepare for decades. 
He's attended every single one of the global climate conferences, starting way back in 1995. That's right. So I'm one of the few people who's been to every single uh, one of the 25 conferences, the parties that have been held so far. Um, I should point out, I don't go as a negotiator. I'm a, I'm a researcher, I'm an academic, I'm a professor. I go as an observer. So Salim has had a front row seat to this question of what the global climate goal should be from the beginning. There was that fuzzy objective back in the 90s of preventing dangerous anthropogenic interference. But to figure out what dangerous interference actually meant in scientific terms, and then to get the whole world to agree to that, was no simple task. It took years. And during that time, as studies were run and climate conferences were held, two degrees emerged as the target, limiting global heating to two degrees above pre-industrial levels. That was never officially decreed or anything, but in 2015, as the world headed to the Paris Climate Conference, two degrees was the number on many people's lips. There was just one problem. Some people, including Salim, said that was the wrong goal. The vulnerable countries came together and they argued that two degrees is no longer a safe threshold. The argument was that it's safe for many who are better off, but it's not safe for the poorest people on the planet. And we're talking hundreds of millions of the poorest people on the planet. They will not be safe under two degrees. In order to make them safe, we have to lower the threshold to 1.5 degrees. Salim says scientists and policymakers from Bangladesh had been pushing to make 1.5 the goal for over a decade already, and they weren't alone. We are at a critical point. We need to get emissions to zero now, otherwise things are going to be much worse in the future. Dr. Adele Thomas is a senior fellow at the Climate Change Research Center at the University of the Bahamas, and she's a senior research associate with Climate Analytics, a global think tank. Her area of expertise is geography. And like Salim, she's been a lead author on multiple UN scientific reports. At one and a half degrees, it's going to be worse than it is now. But at that level of warming, we still have a shot to survive. At two degrees Celsius, it becomes much more difficult for us to envision a future for many of our islands. The Bahamas is part of a group of countries known as Small Island Developing States, or SIDS. Think Fiji, Papua New Guinea, Jamaica. Adele says scientists living and working on these islands have been seeing the impacts of climate change for a long time, and not only sea level rise. They're also dealing with drought and many other problems. Our marine systems, which are so incredibly important for us, are absolutely at risk at two degrees Celsius. So coral reefs at one and a half degrees, there's still a chance of coral reefs being able to survive. At two degrees, 99% of coral reefs are expected to die. So there is a significant, significant difference in the risks that we face at one and a half versus two degrees, which is why SIDS came up with this whole 1.5 to stay alive slogan that they use as a negotiation to really try to bring across how important it is for us to limit temperatures to one and a half degrees. 1.5 to stay alive. This became the rallying cry of small island developing states and dozens of other countries that could see the writing on the seawall. 
Even one degree of warming put them at enormous risk. Two degrees was unthinkable. For low-lying places like the Bahamas, the difference between one and a half and two degrees is your islands will be underwater. Hmm. So it's existence. Yes. The difference between one and a half and two is the existence of an island. Of, of a whole nation, of people's homes, of everything they've ever known, and their whole history. Yes. Yes. So this is why we have to be so vocal and, you know, not passive, because our existence is at risk. And I think that if it was any other country whose existence was at risk, they would be just as adamant about us limiting temperatures to 1.5. A few years ago, while reporting for season two of our show, I spent time on the island community of Shishmaref, Alaska, which is also very threatened by climate change. And while I was talking to Adele and Salim, faces of the people I met there were flashing through my mind. Kids who were playing a few yards from the seawall, elders pointing out into the ocean, telling me what the place looked like a few decades ago. Where I saw nothing but waves, they saw all of these drowned ghosts, places and memories buried by the sea. Shishmaref and dozens of other coastal Alaskan communities are facing the same existential crises Adele is talking about in the Bahamas. But when I left Alaska and tried to explain the situation there to other people, more than one person said, well, you know, winners and losers. If their island is getting washed away, I guess they can't live there anymore. Sad, but I'm not really sure it's my problem. I asked Adele how she responds to that line of thinking. I think people that say winners and losers often are the winners because they can't imagine what it would be like to be a loser. If you were faced with the prospect of not having a home, then I think your mentality would be much different and you would be able to see why it's such a big deal. So if you yourself could imagine that you no longer have a country and you would be, you know, at the whim of whoever wants to take you in, when we see the attitudes towards immigrants currently, imagine now we have complete countries where no one can live and those people must move somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Imagine yourself as that person and can you still say there are winners and losers and the losers just have to figure it out. I think people should try to be much more empathetic and put themselves in a situation of not having anything and, and see that if it's still possible for us to limit temperatures to 1.5, then we should be doing everything possible to do that. So why not do that? If holding warming to 1.5 degrees means preventing entire countries from getting wiped off the map and protecting millions of people from becoming homeless, if it means having some chance of maintaining the Holocene-like climate that has allowed us to flourish, why not aim for that? Why was two degrees the de facto goal back in 2015 before the Paris Climate Conference? 
To answer that, we have to return to the 10% of the countries who've created 80% of the problem. Setting the global goal at 1.5 versus 2 degrees meant those countries would have to make more changes faster. To put it very simply, aiming for 1.5 is harder than aiming for 2. So the major emitters strongly resisted as long as they could. Going into Paris, the United States, China, they were all against it. They were not going to agree. In fact, Salim says being against 1.5 was almost the only thing the U.S. and China agreed on at the start of the Paris conference. And I'll give you a rough uh, framing of how these private conversations would go, um, particularly with countries like the U.S. and Germany and the U.K. and so on. In private, they would say, don't ask us to agree to 1.5. It's just too difficult. Um, it's going to be, you know, very, very difficult for us to do that. Two degrees is difficult enough. 1.5 is even more difficult. It's, it's going to be extremely hard for us to sell it or agree to it. Um, to which our answer was, uh, it may be difficult, but it's not impossible. And as long as it's possible, you have to do it. Salim says representatives of the poorer and more vulnerable countries came into Paris prepared to press harder than they ever had before. They knew it was now or never. They had to get the 1.5 goal written into the agreement if it was ever going to have a chance of being realized. And he says that led to a lot of intense conversations. When you say that there was a lot of arm twisting and backdoor conversations, I mean, were you privy to any of those? Were you seeing somebody like, I'm from the Marshall Islands and you've got to listen to me? Like, is it that personal? Very much so. Very, very personal. It was personal, he says, because the stakes are so personal and so incredibly high. You cannot have a heads of all the governments of the world meeting and effectively saying that we find it too difficult to help the poorest people on the planet. So you guys are on your own. You're not going to survive and we're not going to do anything to help you. We will help the other uh, uh, five, six billion people who are better off uh, to uh, help them survive climate change, but we are writing you off. You, the island, small island states, you, the poor, vulnerable developing countries and people, uh, sorry, uh, we're not going to help you. And that's an impossible uh, thing for them to say. But that is, in effect, what they were saying, even if they didn't want to say it in public. So in Paris, thousands of scientists, political leaders, negotiators, and activists came together to force the issue. Representatives from the small island developing states, especially the Marshall Islands and other parts of the developing world, took a leading role. They had a unified message. Two degrees is not good enough. We have to aim for 1.5. They argued in the side corridors. They protested outside the conference grounds. They carried signs saying 1.5 to stay alive. But Salim says throughout the whole two weeks of the conference, it was not clear what would happen. It is my deep conviction that we have come up with an ambitious and balanced agreement. This is Laurent Fabius speaking through an interpreter at the Paris Climate Conference. Fabius was France's Minister for Foreign Affairs at the time, and he was also the conference president. This recording is from a speech he gave on December 12, 2015, the 13th day of what was supposed to be a 12-day conference, with all the global delegates gathered in a big hall. 
We need to show the world that our collective effort is worth more than the sum of our individual actions. The battle over 1.5 versus 2 degrees was just one of many issues they'd been struggling to address at the conference. There'd been tons of drama, accusations of subterfuge, unlikely alliances, sub-deals and side-deals and multiple all-nighters. And now, on the last day, delegates from 195 countries have a final draft of the agreement in their hands. Fabius is essentially giving them a pep talk before they go off to scrutinize it and decide whether or not to approve it. This text, the one that we have built together, our text, is the best possible balance. Fabius knows there are a lot of people in that room who are not happy. Some think it goes too far. Some say it isn't nearly strong enough. So he's basically begging everyone to keep moving forward despite their differences. Today, we are close to the final outcome. If adopted, this text will mark a historic turning point. It confirms our key objective, the objective which is vital, that of continuing to have a mean temperature well below two degrees and to endeavor to limit that increase to 1.5 degrees. And finally, later that day, it happened. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. The Paris Climate Agreement was accepted. I was there. I was in the room when that happened. What, what was it like? Well, we are all on our feet, you know, uh, clapping and, and uh, <laughs> like crazy, because it was a huge achievement. I mean, if I were you, I would have been bawling. Were you crying when the gavel came down? I was, I was very emotional, very emotional. With the signing of the Paris Agreement, the world had finally united around a central climate goal. And limiting warming to no more than 1.5 degrees was part of it. The language wasn't as robust as many people wanted. 1.5 was included as an aspiration, not a firm commitment. But still, it was a major step forward. We did everything we could do to persuade other countries to come on board. And one by one by one by one, they came on board. They supported us. And since Paris, the case for making 1.5 the global goal has only grown stronger. More science has come out, making it even clearer that two degrees of heating is dangerously high. By insisting on protection for their own communities, the 1.5 to stay alive crowd was actually protecting all of us. To me, that is really the essence of uh, whatever we want to do to tackle climate change. It's the 1.5, it's the iconic uh, number that everybody now has to uh, be judged by. And we can judge countries on whether they're doing enough or not to stay below 1.5. We can judge companies whether they're doing enough. We can judge cities whether they're doing enough. This is now the, the measure of testing the seriousness of actions. Everybody's doing a little bit, little bit doesn't count. Are they doing enough? And how do you define enough? Are they doing enough to stay below 1.5? The more I learn about climate change, 
the more I believe that the heart of this problem is conceptual. We understand the core scientific processes at work here. We know what we need to do. Shift our economy away from coal, oil, and methane gas as quickly as we possibly can. That's difficult, but by no means impossible. What makes it feel next to impossible is our inability to imagine alternative realities. It's hard to visualize a modern, technologically advanced society that isn't powered by fossil fuels. It's hard to conceive of what life would actually be like in a perpetually chaotic climate, spiraling toward a hothouse earth. And it's very hard for people living in relative comfort, people like me, to imagine losing everything and having nowhere to go, no one to turn to, no one who wants to take us in. But people who are already living closer to the edge can imagine it. And because they could feel what more than one and a half degrees of heating might mean for them, they rallied to prevent that. We're used to thinking of world leaders as the people with the most power. But with climate, the true world leaders might be the people with the least power and the best imaginations. Claire from Charlotte, North Carolina. Reporting for this season of Threshold was funded by the Park Foundation, the High Stakes Foundation, the Pleiades Foundation, Newsmatch, the Wu Wellen Foundation, and listeners. This work depends on people who believe in it and choose to support it. People like you. Join our community at thresholdpodcast.org. This episode of Threshold was produced and reported by me, Amy Martin, with help from Nick Mott and Erica Janik. The music is by Todd Sikafus. The rest of the Threshold team is Eva Kalea, Talia Farnsworth, Casey Simpson, and Deneen Weiske. Our intern is Melvin Zaid. Special thanks to Sarah Sneath, Sally Deng, Maggie Contreras, Hannah Carey, Dan Carreno, Luca Borghese, Julia Berry, Kara Cromwell, Katie DeFusco, Caroline Kurtz, and Gabby Piamonte. Additional special thanks to our beloved home public radio station, Montana Public Radio, and also to Addie Terwilliger, Ali Solomon, Audrey Martin, Galen Wobiter, Matt Herlihy, and Michael Connor. In our next episode, join me for a guided tour of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm.